This is the Inside the News podcast, Investigating Rape. In the last episode, we told you the story of Joanna Howe. She said her Lyft driver raped her after bringing her home. But because she was drunk and didn't remember the details, he could not be prosecuted under Minnesota law. Joanna also recounted how the responding officer treated her. As she described it, quote, like he didn't think there was anything to investigate. This episode is about how cops, investigators, and even those in charge of sex crimes react and respond to rape. Inside the News is a collaboration between the Star Tribune and WCCO Radio. What you're about to hear is based on the reporting and audio recordings of Brandon Stahl, Jennifer Bjorhus, Mary Jo Webster, and video journalist Renee Jones-Schneider. I'm your host, Jordana Green. I was assigned to the sex crimes unit because it was the place to put people who were no longer in the favor of the administration. It wasn't technically a demotion, but it, but it was a place that oftentimes people were put when they were in the penalty box. So they were uh, assigned there as a result of falling out of political favor. Mike Martin is a retired precinct captain and 22-year veteran of the Minneapolis Police Department. He was assigned to be the head of the sex crimes unit from 2013 to 2014. Historically, the sex crimes unit has been a place that wasn't a place where people would go as a stepping stone to career advancement. Not necessarily for the investigators who are in there. Some of them are tremendous investigators who want to be in the sex crimes unit. But for the command staff, it was definitely uh, a dead-end job. I know you're asking yourself why. Why wouldn't putting rapists behind bars be a highly respected and rewarding job? Sex crimes are not high-profile incidents usually. It's very rare that there's a stranger rape or a serial rapist, and therefore it's kind of out of the limelight. Neighbors aren't calling to complain about sex crimes. The mayor's not complaining about sex crimes and rapes going up unless there's a high-profile incident. Murders, shootings, aggravated assaults are the things that are more likely to be important, not only to the community, but also to the politicians. As reported in the Star Tribune series Denied Justice and in previous episodes of this podcast, rape is not properly being investigated in Minnesota. All of the evidence is not being collected. Rape kits are going untested and background checks are not being done on suspects. Mike Martin retired from the MPD in 2014. He says the real problem, the real reason behind these failings in the sex crimes unit is protocol and training. I really think there should be more training uh, for officers on how to respond to sexual assaults or, or even alleged sexual assaults, how to interact with victims, what evidence needs to be collected, and um, how to talk to the people involved um, in a way that um, doesn't further traumatize victims. 
There is no mandated protocol in Minnesota on how to treat a sexual assault report. There is no enforced victim-centered training, and victims are being traumatized over and over again, as you're about to hear. We'll explore better training later in the podcast. But this sex crimes is not a priority attitude is apparently not unusual and definitely not new. Laura Goodman has spent her career in law enforcement. She began in the Ramsey County Sheriff's Office as an officer, then served in the Minneapolis Police Department as a sergeant in the Crimes Against Women and Children's Unit, now today known as the Sex Crimes Unit. Then she was the state crime victim's ombudsman for the governor, and finally, a deputy chief in the Brooklyn Center Police Department before she retired in 2005. She and her husband now run a nonprofit that trains law enforcement internationally on gender violence. She shared with me a very vivid memory of the response when she asked to be assigned to the sex crimes unit. When I went in the, the Crimes Against Children unit years ago, I wanted to be in that division. I asked to be in that division. And one of the people that I knew that was on the committee that was going to sign came to me and said, are you, did I get this right? Like, you want to go there? And I was like, yeah, I want, I want to go there. That's why I became a police officer. I want to deal with crimes against women and children. And so, but it was really like not, not a sought after place. People wanted the sexy crimes, the homicide, robbery. This attitude of low priority about sex crimes, is that a common attitude among police? I think it's a common attitude among society. So it's not just in the police department, but it, it is probably it gets exposed more in the police department. It, it, it's really sad for me, honestly, because... I, 30 years ago, we were trying to train law enforcement officers about these myths. So it really is disheartening to me to see in the year 2018, we're still talking about these issues that should be long gone. But part of that is these are myths that are created, and they've been around forever, and they're created to uh, blame women for their own victimization. They're create, they, women buy into them because then they can say, well, I'm not like that, so it won't happen to me. If I don't drink, wear a short skirt, be in the wrong place at the wrong time, uh, then it won't happen to me. And these myths have been gone on forever that, that police departments still use them, I find astonishing. I saw this a lot, especially when I was in the ombudsman's office. The bottom line is, until we change as a society about how we want to look at these crimes, whether or not we want to protect women, police departments aren't going to change, and uh, prosecutors aren't going to change, and there's always going to be excuses for why why these cases aren't being charged. I, I could tell you cases that would make your hair curl. She didn't have to. Actual victims of this apathetic sex crimes are a low priority attitude shared their own stories. Women like Alyssa. She reported being raped in 2015 in Mankato. 
She describes her first interaction with the responding officer. One of the things he said that first night in the parking lot was, um, well, maybe if you would have gone to church and met a nice guy, this wouldn't have happened. He asked me if I had a boyfriend, and I was like, no. And he's like, okay, because you know, most of the time these cases are just a boyfriend and girlfriend break up, and she sleeps with somebody else, and then she feels guilty about it, so she calls us. And then when I told him that he was still texting me, he was like, well, he just letting you know he had a good time and he wants to get together again. Alyssa's case was never assigned an investigator and closed without notifying her. After she badgered the Mankato police, they did send her case to the county attorney, who declined to press charges. In March of 2016, Haley was told by the Minneapolis police they lost her rape kit, so her case was being closed. She begged them to find it, and miraculously, a few weeks later, another detective called her to come in for an interrogation. His actual words, because they found her rape kit. She was grateful until she sat down for the police interview. I remember before he hit play, he told me, well, you wouldn't be in this situation if you weren't so provocative. If you didn't act provocatively, if you didn't invite these situations upon you, you wouldn't be here. And I couldn't believe it because I was the victim. I hadn't done anything wrong. I wasn't wearing a short skirt or a, you know, a see-through blouse. And it wouldn't have mattered if I had, because I had said no. But that didn't matter to him, and I knew that from the start. I feel like he just called me a slut. Haley's case was assigned an investigator, but the investigator told her advocate he believed the suspect who said the sex was consensual. Haley's case was later dropped by the county attorney, who did not have enough evidence to press charges. And then there's Emily, who reported being raped in 2015 in Wilmer. She was told her rape kit wasn't worth being tested because the men who were involved claimed it was consensual. My captain had told me, and it was one of the most hurtful things I think anybody's ever said to me, um, he asked me why I wanted it tested. Um, and I was telling him why, and I had said to him that I know I was assaulted by one individual, but four, four other guys went in there and took photos and videos of me. Like, I don't know what other people did to me. And his response was, I don't know why you want your rape kit tested, because it's just a box with nothing in it and just a red piece of tape that says evidence over it. And I, I remember telling him that I was in there. My hope was in there. My dignity was in that box. I couldn't believe that someone had said to me that it was nothing, like it was nothing. That to them it's just swabs. To them it's just a box with a name on it. And he never apologized to me about it. He never said he was sorry for how hurtful it was to me. And it's, it's hard, and it's very, very 
dehumanizing. And I've said that over and over and over again to the police department is my interactions with them and the way that they have treated me um, have been some of the most dehumanizing things that I think I've ever experienced. Emily's case was investigated and dropped because the men claimed the sex was consensual. Andrea says she was raped in Minneapolis by her ex-boyfriend in 2014. When she reported it, the female investigator assigned to her case responded this way. She said that when my assailant made suicidal threats, I should have wanted him to kill himself. And she said that she couldn't believe I was able to get a lawyer for my harassment restraining order case against my assailant. And she asked me if I was paying this lawyer. Ultimately, it seemed like just after the investigator talked to my perpetrator and his friends, that was all she needed and that was all she would believe. She didn't even want to see any evidence that I had. So. Andrea's case was investigated and dropped without notifying her. Evidence like a text message from the suspect who admitted wrongdoing was never considered before Andrea's case was dropped. And finally, Heather. She says she was raped in 2014 in St. Paul. But the officer seemed more interested in what this could do to the rapist's life than hers. It didn't feel like she actually cared. It felt like it was just her job to ask me questions. Just going through this checklist, she didn't really care about my story. She just wanted to check things off this little list that she had, and that was going to be what it was. And so at the end of it, she said, well, you know, you shouldn't have been uh, drinking, and you probably shouldn't have, um, you should probably should have been more careful. I bet you regret not being more careful. At that moment, I thought, oh my God, this was actually my fault. And so I hated myself at that moment. Like I felt completely crushed. I felt like everything in my world had just turned upside down. I didn't know why I reported it. I felt like she did make a comment to me about, you know, by reporting this, you can change somebody else's life. Like basically making me be sure that I, my rape abusers were actually people I wanted to charge and change their life. And I said, yeah, I understand, like, what they did to me. They deserve to be, you know, in jail or whatever happens. Like, yes. And she, she just kept on, I don't know, she almost made me want to just admit, like, oh, no, I asked for it or something. Like, that's what she was going for. It was like she was begging me to just be like, oh, you're right. I was drunk and I told them to have sex with me. And that's not at all what happened. And so, but that's kind of, I seemed like that's what she was asking me to tell her. Uh, so that it would just be over with. Heather got an email at work saying no charges would be filed in her case because of lack of evidence. The first couple interviews, it was almost like a disbelief, like, how could it be this bad? Renee Jones-Schneider recorded all of these women's interviews. And Jennifer Bjorhus, Brandon Stahl, and Mary Jo Webster wrote the fourth installment of Denied Justice for the Star Tribune. But now that I've done 20, it's expected almost every time I hear an interview. It's, I'm not as shocked anymore, but 
It was pretty shocking at first. Do some of them still stick with you? I think Alyssa's story, she ended up having nightmares about the police officer um, for years where her dream was that he would knock on the door and she'd answer and he'd step aside and she'd be shot by her perpetrator. I mean, she felt extremely victimized by the police investigator that handled her case. Haley stood out to me too. Her uh, initial interactions with her investigator were a voicemail. She says that he called her for an interrogation, which I can't even imagine how that would feel. That's kind of one of the things that has been resonating too, is that so many of these women go in as victims and they kind of leave these interviews feeling like suspects. I've thought about putting myself in their shoes and it would be extremely um, disappointing to go through what is arguably one of the most traumatic crimes and, um, and leave some of these interviews feeling so much worse almost than you did. And it takes so much for um, these victims to actually even just tell their story. It's such a shameful situation. They often have so much self-blame. And then they go in and they tell their story. And what we have heard so many times is that they didn't ever feel believed. Some of them have told us they didn't feel believed ever until they told us their story. And to me, that's like the first basic step a police officer could do to improve. Start by believing a victim. It's hard for me to listen to these stories and not be incredulous about this treatment. So, Brandon and Jennifer, why is this happening? I think there's um, a range of reasons it's happening. And most of the people in law enforcement I've talked with offer different, um, uh, different explanations. Cultures of police departments are all different. Some do a great job, some don't. But um, I think there is... A a low regard for these types of crimes among, you know, it's not uncommon in law enforcement. It highlights a kind of regard for these crimes as, as um, you know, um, a, a dreaded call sometimes for street officers because they're not comfortable with these crimes. They're not comfortable talking to victims about this sort of thing. Others may view them as problem cases because they can be so difficult uh, and time-consuming. Uh, and have a lot of twists and turns and, and just require a lot of time to thoroughly investigate. And so there may be a, a, a sense that also that they can't win these cases, that, that they know that the prosecution rate is so low uh, and the chances of getting charges filed are so low that they, they, they may feel like, I, I can't win, you know, here. So how much effort am I, you know, realistically do I put into this? You know, one of the things I did want to bring up, I spoke with the SARS nurse, or a SANE nurse, a sexual assault nurse examiner, who is, um, she said she's done about 700 of these, these kits or cases around the state. And she said it was commonplace for these initial officers to come in when they reported to police and ask very blaming questions. You know, why were you drinking? Um, why, what were you wearing? And she said she didn't think it was intentional. She thought that it was, one, lack of training. They just simply didn't have the training to do it. And two, it was lack of experience. Imagine you're an MPD beat cop, of which there are many. You might get, she said, maybe half a dozen of these calls to HCMC a year. So you're not seeing them that frequently. If you're, if you're a beat cop, if you're an investigator, that's a little different. 
But if you're just a beat cop where that case you know, begins and it's so important to get it right from the very get-go and you are asking blaming questions, it affects the case for the rest of the process. Would victim-centered training and trauma training, even at the beat cop level, solve a lot of these problems? We're told around the country that yes, it would. They have introduced uh, trauma-informed interviews at the beat cop level, and it affects it and improves these cases through the rest of the, the life of the case. Victim is more likely to stay involved. You're more likely to get a full investigation, more likely to send for charges, more, uh, more likely to get a charge, and more likely to get a conviction. Is it just attitudes or is it resources? Is there not enough money for proper training? Are there not enough cops in the sex crimes unit? Well, with the larger uh, police departments uh, that have a sex crimes unit or something like it, it certainly seems like it's a, a clear issue with resources and staffing. They have more cases and fewer detectives in the homicide unit in St. Paul, uh, Minneapolis, and um, well, Duluth has about the same number of detectives, but, you know, far more cases in sex crimes um, than homicides. So it, it, it does seem like there's a mismatch of resources, particularly considering that these cases require so much time and effort to investigate. You also wrote in your article about turnover. How important is leadership and stability in a sex crimes unit? Well, I think it's huge from what I've been told uh, from people in law enforcement. I think that is one of the most striking facts from the St. Paul uh, Police Department is that none of the detectives that were in that unit in sex crimes, investigating sex crimes uh, in 2013 are there today. That's really interesting. It really tells you something about churn and turnover. If they have relied on other detectives to teach the new ones coming in how to do the job, well, they're gone. What about training? Is there consistent training in Minnesota for sex crimes investigations? No, uh, there is no consistent training in Minnesota. Um, the state, uh, independent state board that uh, sets out the requirements and standards for training uh, has never had here in Minnesota model policy on training or specific requirements uh, or um, training after an officer gets their badge, you know. So you're saying that a, an officer can get assigned to the sex crimes unit with no prior training? Correct. After three installments of Denied Justice in the Star Tribune and three investigating rape podcasts, the Minneapolis Police Department, the largest police department in Minnesota, finally agreed to an interview. Deputy Chief Eric Fors of the Investigations Bureau and Commander Bruce Falkins of the Special Crimes Investigative Division, which includes the Sex Crimes Unit, sat down with Jennifer Bjorhus, Mary Jo Webster, Renee Jones-Schneider, Jared Goyette, and me. We began with their response to Mike Martin's comments about what it's like to be the head of sex crimes in Minneapolis. What about attitudes within the department? We've heard from former MPD, not working here anymore, that becoming the head of the sex crimes unit is like getting put in the penalty box. I can say from my perspective, in our administrative perspective, there could be nothing further than the truth. Um, this, the, the Lieutenant Gossett, who we, we selected to, to put in that unit, um, was done so after after a lot of thought um, in, in terms of 
you know, the different attributes and skills that he brings, uh, his demeanor. I will um, tell you, we've had lieutenants that asked to go to sex crimes and were placed in sex crimes and, again, promoted out um, after time spent, promoted out and stuff like that. It's definitely, it's not a, a punishment. No. It's a hard job. It's a hard, hard job. And like the chief was saying, we, they're doing a great job of looking at the personalities and not just the nuts and bolts of doing the job, but personalities that would best serve those positions and stuff and, and moving forward. So what some individuals thought, I can't speak to that, but I will tell you as the commander of that, of that unit and, and a lot of my units, I, it's like those are incredible jobs and I want the best people in there. I've talked to women, and, and Star Tribune has talked to women, yes. and said when the officer came, he said, he called me a slut. Or he said, why was my skirt so short? Or if I had gone to church and met a nice guy, this wouldn't have happened. When you hear stories like that from victims, what is your response? We have to be very, very sympathetic to the victims, but we also have to, through experience in court trials and, and things like that, is ask those very difficult questions because if if we don't ask them it's going to be held against us in court as a problem area for a defense tactic and, and i'm not trying to say that there haven't been instances where potentially victims haven't been treated in the best way and we're always we're always looking to improve that and like i know i can say before i go to the other part that our intent is we want to build a system that we'd feel comfortable to have a family member go through. Right. That's our intent. Um, because, you know, there's, there's a possibility that they may. And, and I don't want to have a system that's going to fail them. For the women in our story, they do feel like the system failed them. But Deputy Chief Fors and Commander Fulkin say officers' training has been improved since the women's stories you heard were reported. And recognizing that um, in, many, in many instances, you know, how an officer handles these scenes can really make or break the effectiveness of any further investigation or prosecution, whether it be from evidence not collected or questions not asked or how things or how people are treated and handled at the scene. So knowing that we've put forward um, 16 hours in the police academy solely dedicated to sexual crime response that incorporates uh, advocates, sex crimes investigators, the city attorney, uh, where they discuss everything from approaching, doing scenarios, role-playing, uh, how, to, how to practice testifying in these cases, how to write reports. Um, they hear from advocates, uh, from I believe from survivors, yep. that, uh, that discuss the impact of this crime. Have but prior to animals. this new model, you guys didn't have any regular training for the beat cops or even the detectives and the investigators that they had to do in the sex crimes unit. We didn't mandate anything specifically to sex crimes, no. Okay, yes. thank you. In addition to the training, we also addressed resources with the MPD. A few years ago, there were 11 investigators in the sex crimes unit. Today, there are six. Deputy Chief Fors says he plans to hire eight civilians to handle some mundane police responsibilities so sworn officers can be assigned to more substantial police duties. 
The deputy chief and the commander also addressed the issue of churn of leadership in the sex crimes unit. Here's some perspective. The head of homicides has been there for a decade. Sex crimes has had six different leaders in 10 years. It takes time to learn the job, get good at the job, build those relationships. So we understand that you need to keep those people in role so that they can maintain that and have that comfortableness about doing that job so that when it's when it is time to pass it on to the next person, that resource is there. They can help with that transition time. While there's no concrete plan to address turnover, Fors and Falcon say it's one of Chief Arandando's priorities. As the deputy chief acknowledged, thanks to the Star Tribune series Denied Justice, some other initiatives are happening to improve the way sexual violence is handled by police. A full-time advocate will be hired, and an attorney from the county attorney's office will be embedded in the sex crimes unit to work alongside sworn officers and investigators. This article really allowed this conversation to happen in an accelerated manner to kind of bring things together in a good in a good format. And what I would really want is that the end result of this is that we have a system in place that really serves the victim much better than it has. So what we could end up with is having the advocacy there to help with the investigator with the case review and have a county attorney who's also there to provide real-time feedback on what is going on from the case intake process through the investigation. And what we really want is that 360 degree. I believe we all can agree. We want every police department to be better and more successful in the future at processing sex crimes. But a lot of long-lasting damage has already been done to past victims who shared their stories. I had an easier time, I think, dealing with the actual rape and going through that than, you know, I still have nightmares of this cop. Every once in a while I still, and I see a cop car. It doesn't matter where, if I see a cop car, I get a little anxious and kind of have to catch my breath sometimes. And, you know, I've lost all trust, really. And it just, it's so frustrating and it's so dehumanizing. And I've talked to our chief police about chief of police about it and I've said it to him how this has been by far the worst and most traumatizing experience in my solid self. Because it's people that I'm supposed to be able to trust and go to for help. And instead they're fighting so hard to like find flaws in my story, to find flaws in anything that they can find. And I don't know why. But in the end, being raped was the thunderstorm, and Minneapolis Police Department was the tornado that actually destroyed what I was going through. That really sucks to say, but it's true. In the next episode of Inside the News, investigating rape, prosecution. Why is it so hard to prosecute rape in Minnesota? We called this person and recorded the phone call. He admitted that he had raped me. He admitted that he knew it was rape. He didn't know why he had done it, but he did it anyway, and he felt really bad about it. Um, Brian 
recorded this phone call. So he has a taped confession from this person and had said that that was really damning evidence and it seemed like probably he would be going to prison for a long time. Um, Minneapolis Police Department, they took my story and assured me that justice would be served and then ignored me for a while and when I got back in contact with them they told me that they were not going to prosecute the person even though he admitted that he did it. The Inside the News Investigating Rape podcast is created by me, Jordana Green, Jared Goyette, and Dan Colhane with WCCO Radio. With reporting and audio credits from the Star Tribune's Brandon Stahl, Jennifer Bjorhus, Mary Jo Webster, and Renee Jones-Schneider. Star Tribune editing credits are Abby Simons, Dave Hagee, Eric Wiffering, and Suki Dardarian.